Father, we give thanks to you again this morning. Thank you for the songs that we just sang together. They are not inspired, and yet, Father, we believe that they give glory to you because they are a faithful representation of the truth. And so we give you praise and thanksgiving together every time we sing like this. And we know from the book of Hebrews that when, when your brethren sing praises to God, you sing in our midst. And so we praise you. And we ask your blessing now on this time, Father. I pray that you would teach us your truth, protect us from error, and change us, we pray. I pray especially, Father, for anyone here who doubts whether they are in right standing with God, that today would be the day of repentance and faith unto salvation, or repentance and faith unto renewed sanctification. Either way, Father, we'll give you praise for it and thanksgiving. In the name of our Savior Jesus, amen and amen. I want to invite you this morning to turn in your Bible with me to Romans chapter 4, and we'll begin reading with verse 13. Romans chapter 4, let's stand together in honor of God's Word, and we will read verses 13 through 16. The Apostle Paul writes, For the promise to Abraham, his offspring, that he would be heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if, for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word, and you can be seated. Every year, every year, Jews in America celebrate a tradition called Rosh Hashanah, which means the first of the year, or New Year's. This is the Jewish New Year. This, this year took place in September. It's a high tradition. It's a high celebration of Jewish people around the world. And every year, every year during that portion of the week, Christian groups like the Southern Baptist, Congre or Southern Baptist Convention publish an open letter to its constituents, its people. There are millions of them pleading with them during Rosh Hashanah to pray for those Jewish people asking that God would so move in their hearts that they would repent and believe in Jesus and be converted. And every year in the Jewish community, that message is hated and resisted. 
In response to the Christian call for prayer, Jewish leaders tend to respond publicly declaring that calls for Jewish conversions by Christians is the height of arrogance. And then they quote Abraham Heschel, one of the leading Jewish-American theologians who has on occasion declared that Christians should abandon the idea that Jews must be converted. When I read about this this week, I thought, this is the perfect opener for anything Paul has to say here in the first several chapters of the book of Romans. But this kind of response is nothing new, right? This is nothing new. And the reason that I point this out to you this morning is because after week after week after week, we hear this, this historic conflict between the Apostle Paul and, and his, his fellow Jews, and we can become jaded and think, well, that's 2,000-year-old that's news. Well, no, it is happening today. And it is happening not only with the Jews, but anyone else who needs to repent and believe in Jesus so this kind of response is nothing new. The Apostle Paul was himself a converted, converted Jew, faced with this kind of opposition nearly every time he preached. There were exceptions, but they were few in number. The Jewish skeptics in Paul's day found it impossible to believe that God would declare a person righteous in his sight by any means other than obedience to God's law. And so when Paul came to town preaching justification by faith and faith alone, it sounded to them like arrogance and heresy. It struck them as something new, something novel. But the doctrine of justification, as we've seen repeatedly, because it's what Paul is trying to establish, is nothing new. This is not new. The gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, is no innovation. In fact, this gospel is older than the law itself. 430 years older. And everywhere Paul traveled, he preached it and had the privilege of seeing the gospel transform the hearts of many thousands of people and the birth of many Hundreds of churches. And these churches were full of both Jews and Gentiles alike. And so it is today. The gospel of Jesus Christ announces to sinners that ungodly men and women are declared righteous. That is, they are justified not by virtue of their Jewishness, not by their religious traditions, not by ceremony, not by good works, not by circumstances. Or, I'm sorry, circumstances. Circumcision. A little different. <laughs> and not even by keeping the law. Now, there's a progression of thought here with the Apostle Paul. First he says, it's not by works. Then it's not by circumcision. And now it's not by law. It's not by law. It's not by being a good law keeper or a better law keeper. Rather, justification is something that God freely bestows as a gift. It is grace. 
and it can be received only by the empty hand of faith. For, Paul says in 3.28, we maintain that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. This morning we take our fourth step into the fourth chapter of this book of Romans, this letter that Paul wrote to the church at Rome. And to prove to his readers that the gospel is not new, he points them and us to Moses, Moses' testimony, his record of Abraham in Genesis 15:6, where we learn Abraham, a former idolater, and I dare say a wife abuser, just read his story, believed in God. He believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, when I said wife abuser, I suspect for some of you a shiver ran up your spine. As you think about God justifying a wife abuser by faith, simply because he believed. The text says he believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. But my dear brothers and sisters, you need, to see, you need to see this text like you're looking in a mirror. Because you too are a sinner. Abraham is held up as the paragon of righteousness and virtue, but it just wasn't true. He desperately needed justification that can come only by faith alone. And he received it. He received something that he did not deserve. And that's the way forgiveness always is. Whenever you ask someone for forgiveness, you are asking for something that you don't deserve. You're asking, you're asking them to cancel your debt. And it's scandalous. And it's true. As Paul points to Abraham, so he points to David. Back in chapter 4, verse 6, who was famous not only because he was a man after God's own heart, he was that, he was that, but at the same time, he had also sinned egregiously, not only against Bathsheba and against her husband, whom he had killed to cover his crime, but he also sinned against his nation, his people. And not only that, but he, he came to understand in, in Psalm 51, right? Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. It doesn't mean he didn't sin against the others too. It's just he understood that the most important thing was his relationship with God and he had abused it. And so this same David, now humbled because of his sin, thanks to Nathan and the power of the Holy Spirit, David wrote this psalm in the aftermath, verse 32. Psalm, verse, uh, psalm 32. Here is that wonderful, glorious psalm that so many of us have used in prayer, in our morning worship and morning, asking the Lord for sweet forgiveness again. David in Psalm 32 rejoices in God who did not count his sins against him but rather forgave 
counting him righteous by faith instead. So you see what Paul is doing here. This is not a new doctrine. Look at Abraham. If you're not impressed with Abraham, remember Moses wrote the record of Abraham. And if that doesn't impress you enough, think of David. And on we could go. And then beginning in verse 9, Paul reveals that since Abraham was a Gentile when God declared him righteous, which is a, a stupendous thought, a shocking thought, that this paragon of Jewish virtue was actually a Gentile when he was declared righteous in the eyes of God. He is rightly called the father of all Gentiles who believe. All the Gentiles who believe. Now, let me see a show of hands. How many of you are Gentiles? Almost all of us are. Maybe all of us in this congregation right now. It's 100% Gentile. And as we learned last week, Abraham is our spiritual father. Also, because it was from this one man, Abraham, that God chose, that God's chosen people would come into the world, he became the father of all the Jews who believed as well. And so whether you're a believing Jew or a believing Gentile, Abraham is your father by faith. And this is where we ended last week. And I hope you enjoyed greeting people afterwards by saying, Abraham is my father. And you could see the light bulb come on every time, every time I popped in and saw that for the first, you know, the first instance that an individual did. And the light came on again and again. That means we are brothers and sisters. That was the whole point of that. You and I are brothers and sisters in Abraham, in Christ. And so this is where we left off last time. So picking up Paul's train of thought now, in verse 13 we read, this is Romans 4, 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And what does Paul mean when he says, when he calls Abraham heir of the world? It's interesting reading on this, and different people have different ideas on how to interpret this, but... To answer that question, we need to focus on the word promise. This is a promise. The Lord gave to Abraham a promise. So turn with me all the way back um, to Genesis chapter 15. Keep your finger here in Romans, because we're going to come back to that, obviously. But in Genesis 15, I want you to see this in the text and not merely hear me read it to you. I want you to see it in your own Bible. This is Genesis 15. And the question we should ask is, what exactly did Abraham believe? Answer, he believed God's promise. God made a promise. And what was that promise? Well, actually, the promise consisted of a, of a small constellation of promises. It wasn't just one promise. It was a few. For example, number one, God promised Abraham a son in his old age. Look at 15 Verses 1 through 4. This is Genesis 15, 1 through 4. And Moses writes, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. 
But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham, and Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. By the way, the word heir here, you're going to hear this again and again. You're the one that inherits whatever Abraham has, right? My household, a member of my household will be my heir. In other words, I don't have a son. You haven't given me a son. We're getting old here. And my inheritance is not going to go to anyone in my direct family. I haven't had a son. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And so God promised Abram a son. And, and he was of the age where that was getting pretty close to impossible. Second, God promised a multitude, a multitude from Abram through his son. And look at verses 5 and 6. And God brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if, if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. In other words, God promised to do for Abraham something that could not possibly be done. And Abraham believed the promise, hoping against hope. And so his faith was counted as righteousness. And beloved, this is the ground. This is the historic and theological ground of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And immediately after these first two promises, we see a third one come up in the same text. Verse 15, or chapter 15, verse 7. Genesis 15, 7. Here God promises him a land. And Yahweh said to him, I am the Lord who brought you up from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And then there was a fourth promise. And God promised a multitude of nations, not just a multitude of people, but a multitude of multitudes. Many, many people. Look at chapter 17, verse 4. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. A multitude of nations. And then chapter 17, verses 5 and 6. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you who are incapable of having children. Isn't that amazing? And by the way, um, with the exception of seeing his son, none of the rest of this 
came to fruition in his lifetime. Read the book of Hebrews, especially chapter 11. What did Abraham believe when God counted him righteous? Well, he believed God would give him a son and that his son would become as numerous as the stars in the sky. That from there would come a multitude of nations and that they, his son and his children's children's children would inherit a very specific land. Humanly speaking, there is no chance that Abraham and Sarah would ever have had a son, let alone reproduce multitudes of people. When that son was born, Abraham was 100 years old. And when that son was born, his wife was 90 years old. It must have been excruciating for them to wait and wait and wait. And you remember, they eventually got impatient, took matters into their own hand, and, and that's where Ishmael came from. Nevertheless, he believed God. He believed God when God came again and said, no, no, you are going to have a son. It was counted to him as righteousness. Moses believed God. He, he must have known something about God. He must have known something about God. He must have known that if God is God, he must be omniscient. He knows everything. He must be omnipotent. He can do anything. He is sovereign. That is, he's the king who rules over all. And he is trustworthy. He keeps all of his promises and you know what? It was 430 years before any of that was written down. But he knew. He knew. And so let there be no mistake. Abraham was a sinner. Abraham was ungodly in the sense that all people are ungodly of heart. But when God revealed his sovereign plan, Abraham believed. And God counted his belief as righteousness. And sure enough... God made good on his promises. Abraham had his very own son. That's exactly the words that God used. He had his very own son when he was 100 years old, and his name was Isaac, which means laughter. And that certainly seems appropriate. Sarah laughed when the Lord came and told her that, that that's what was going to happen, and she denied laughing. And the Lord said, oh, but you did. <laughs> and so they named him Laughter. Laughter. I mean, it's laughable to think that a 90-year-old woman can have a baby. But nothing is impossible with God. And it's very, very clear that God waited all of those decades to make sure that everyone understood that it's impossible. Impossible. You know, so many times when um, one of our charismatic friends say, you know, I got to see a miracle. And you ask, what was the miracle? Well, this person's legs, one, one leg was a little longer than the other, and we prayed, and, and the other leg got, you know, that much longer. And you're like, well, how do you demonstrate that? Maybe they shifted their hips. Or, or even in some of Jesus' miracles, I mean, People could come up with an excuse. Interestingly enough, 
No one ever did. Everyone understood that a healing had taken place, but here there could possibly, there cannot possibly be any doubt. This 90-year-old woman, nothing is impossible with God. I know that that verse is misused constantly. People were naming it and claiming it and, and all kinds of other stuff. But you know what? This truth should be the bedrock of your soul. Nothing is impossible with God. Your salvation is not impossible. Your ability to honor God in your suffering is possible. Those bills that need to be paid that you think never are they ever going to get paid? Nothing is impossible with God. Abraham had his very own son, 100 years old. And from Abraham came a multitude of physical descendants. The Jews were descendants of Abraham. From Abraham's grandson, whose name was Jacob, whose name was changed to what? Israel. His name was changed to Israel. This is a direct descendant of Abraham. And the fulfillment of this promise is evident in the book of Exodus. The Lord said you would have a son, and that son will become a multitude. And this is exactly what we find in the book of Exodus. In the very first paragraph of the book of Exodus, we read, But in Egypt, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and became exceedingly strong. So extremely numerous and strong were they that it really bothered, that's not the best word, Pharaoh. Pharaoh got scared. If there is a revolt, they're going to win. Abraham's descendants were also given the land that God promised. And we see that fulfillment in the, in the book of Joshua with with God's help, they conquered the land of Canaan. Also, Abraham had another son, Ishmael, who became the father of the Arab nations. You see, there's a multitude of nations. And even as these nations split into sub-nations, God was fulfilling his promises. Not only that, but Abraham also had spiritual descendants. As we learned from Paul last week, these descendants include all Jewish men and women, who were justified by the same kind of faith as Abraham, and all the Gentiles who were justified by the same kind of faith as Abraham. Not only that, but God also promised in Genesis 12, 3, that through Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. All the families of the earth. In other words, you won't be able to go to any part of the world only to discover that no one has been blessed by this one. And we'll need to talk about that for a minute. We don't have time to go deep into this teaching. Um, Jason did it a while back. But we can't hardly touch on this verse without fast-forwarding to Galatians 3.16, where under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul explains... And I'll read this for you. This is Galatians 3.16. The promises were made to Abraham 
and to his seed. Or maybe if you have an ESV, offspring. The promises were made not only to Abraham, but to his offspring. That's why so often when they talk about the fathers of Israel, it's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's more, it's everyone who came after them. And then Paul clarifies saying, it does not say to his seeds, plural, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your seed, who is Christ. And we should note here that this verse is one of the reasons that we say we believe in the verbal, plenary inspiration of Scripture. In other words, not only the words and thoughts are inspired, but the very tense voice and mood of those words are inspired. Because here, in this Scripture, the whole argument stands or falls upon whether or not there is an S or no S at the end of the word. Is it seed or is it seeds? Paul's argument hinges on that. Is it singular or plural? And so Paul is arguing that it wasn't Abraham's seeds, that means all of the people who came after him, but rather seed one of those who came after him. One seed. Abraham's seed to whom the promise was made, namely Christ. If we had time, we could go all the way back to the beginning of Genesis where after Adam and Eve sinned, God promised a seed and a future son of Eve who would crush the serpent's head and be man's savior. This is that same seed God promised Abraham and the same seed promised by Paul in Galatians 3, namely Jesus Christ, the author of our salvation. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, the seed, that whoever believes will not perish but have everlasting life. You see, it is through Jesus Christ, the seed, the son of Eve, the son of Abraham, the son of Mary, the son of God, that all the world would be blessed. Galatians 3.39. Paul writes this, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed. Plural. You are Abraham's seed. Look at the connection. If you are Christ's, if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. Heirs according to promise. You are the heirs of what God promised to Abraham. Christ is the one who fulfilled it. The seed of Abraham, the seed singular, through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed. I tell you, it's, it's a blessing even uh, here this week and last. We were trying to have Calvary 101 down there. Did I mention that to you last week? I've mentioned it again. 
Uh, you know, we're down there trying to teach, and, and all these children are singing about Jesus coming to earth, the incarnate Christ, in preparation for the candlelight service. And it's, it's, it's not just sweet, it's glorious. And you know what? Every one of your families is blessed by it. Every family. And you know what? This whole city is blessed by it. You go downtown and you see all the, all the junk, all the sin that happens down there, and you see people walking into Bass Hall. You know what happens at Bass, at Bass Hall on Christmas? They get these glorious musicians and vocalists, and, and most of them, maybe, I don't know, I shouldn't say most, that's a little judgy, whether or not they know the Lord or not, I don't know, but there they are singing the Messiah. And you know what? Singing the Messiah means they're singing Old Testament scripture, and they don't know it. And if you listen to the words, those who hear and listen to the words are being blessed by the seed who is Christ. Paul's concern in this passage, however, is that no one gets to be this kind of error, error, not error, this kind of heir of Abraham by law. No one gets to be that kind of heir by law. Okay, so in reality, all of that was introduction. But again, let's read from Romans 4.13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he will be heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And from there, Paul explains why justification cannot come by law. Why could God's promise not be realized by law-keeping, but only by faith? Why? Paul actually gives us six answers here, I think. I see six reasons in this text. Three are negative and three are positive. So let's look at each one and we'll do, obviously, it'll be very brief. But number one, why must justification be by faith rather than by law keeping? Well, number one, because the law nullifies faith. The law nullifies faith. Look at verse 14. For if it is the adherents to the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null. It means nothing. Now, when Paul speaks of the adherents of the law, he's talking about people who think they can be justified by, in God's sight by law-keeping. That is, by keeping the Ten Commandments or keeping the manifold commandments that are found in the law or keeping the twofold commandments. You know, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You focus on any one of them or all of them, none of that is going to get you justified in the eyes of God. And Paul is saying that if you hope that you will be able to obey your way into heaven, faith is nullified. Faith is nullified. And that's the only way in. Faith is nullified. Think of it this way. Law and faith are opposites. You can't have it both ways. You will either approach your salvation, your justification in God's sight as something that you can earn by your effort or you will receive it by faith. There is no middle ground. 
You can't have a mixture of the two. And, and uh, there are many quasi-Christian religions, all of which hold to some measure of grace and law, and most notably Roman Catholicism, which I'll talk about again here in just a minute. The one will always cancel out the other. Law and faith always cancel one another out. Law and faith cannot coexist. It's like attempting to light a match underwater. No matter how vigorously you strike the match, the water will always smother the spark. In the same way, faith and law-keeping are diametrically opposed. They cannot be in the same place, in the same time, in the same way. Another way to, to say it is that you will either trust in yourself to obtain what God requires for salvation, or you will trust that God provided what you need freely by his grace, but you can't do both. You can pretend to do both. You can trick yourself into, into believing you're doing both, but it's one or the other. So if you choose the option of going it alone and attempting to earn your justification by sheer determination, self-discipline, and self-righteousness, you nullify faith. You close the only door you have to justification. Secondly, not only does the, 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 um, the second reason that the law will not get you justification is because law voids God's promise. We just spent a lot of time talking about promise, but look at verse 14 again. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null, and uh, here we go, the promise is void. In Galatians 3.18 we read, For if the inheritance comes by law, it no longer comes by promise. If it comes by law, it doesn't come by promise. But God gave it to Abraham as a promise. Abraham wasn't even asking for it. God just gave it to him. Once again, you, you can't have it both ways. Law-keeping is always an attempt to earn God's favor, his acquittal, his declaration of being right with himself. But that's the very opposite of receiving it as promise. But God gave the inheritance to Abraham as a promise, as a whole constellation of promises. You see, beloved, if, God, if God's promise of justification is only available to those who keep the law perfectly, listen carefully, if it is only by keeping the law perfectly, we've got a serious problem. Because James says in James 2.10, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point will become guilty of all of it. Illustration. If your car recently died, I mean really seriously did, not just most, never mind. <laughs> and I happen to have a brand new car that I just got, and I come to you and say, friend, I promise to give you this beautiful brand new car with a 10-year bumper-to-bumper warranty, still intact. I've already got the, I've already got the uh, title with your name on it. 
I've already signed it. It's yours if you'll take it. There's only one qualification. In order to get it, you have to dive into my pool and go to the bottom and hold your breath for 20 minutes. I mean, that kind of promise, nobody's going to get that promise. And that's exactly what, what Paul is saying. When it comes to justification, there's nothing you can do to earn it. So law-keeping, law-keeping is not going to get you there. You can't meet the qualification. No one can. It's not dive to the bottom of my pool and, and hold your breath. It's rather obey the law perfectly. But wait, you've already blown that because you've already sinned. If God says, I promise you salvation, eternal life with God, justification with God, and the only thing you have to do is keep the law perfectly, that's impossible. It's not really a promise. You can't get it. Nobody will get it. Not in those terms. And so the third reason justification cannot be by law is that the law brings wrath. Look at the next few words, the verse, uh, the first few words of verse 15. The first words are, for the law brings wrath. The irony on this point is that while it seems like human beings are hardwired to think that they can earn God's acceptance by keeping the law, the Bible teaches that the law was never designed to justify anyone. The law brings wrath. To the contrary, the law of God condemns. It brings wrath. Here's a reference for you, Galatians 3, verse 10. Galatians 3, verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and to do them. Not just agree with them, but do them. And someone will say, well then, if the law of God is not the moral standard for attaining justification, then what's the law for? I thought we were supposed to obey the law. I mean, people were trying to erect uh, Ten Commandments signs all over the place where they've been torn down, put back. I mean, isn't, isn't that the moral standard? Well, it is a moral standard. It's a fabulous moral standard. It is a reflection of the very character of God, but it is not the means of salvation. It's actually, there are two purposes, and maybe more, but two that stand out to me for the law. What is the law for if it's not to earn justification? Well, it was designed, it was designed to reveal or expose our sin. It's there to expose our sin. Romans 7, verse 7 if it had not been for the law, I would, have, would not have known sin. I wouldn't have known sin. I wouldn't have known coveting if the word of God, the, the law of God, had not, had not said, thou shalt not covet. It's interesting, Paul says, when you do hear the law say, do not covet, what happens? The law becomes complicit with your desire, and it gets, your desire gets inflamed to suddenly start coveting. Remember when I was a kid, we used to go to the, the Jersey Shore all the time. I grew up in Jersey, right? And so there was this, this beautiful park that they kept clean and all kinds of regulations that made it beautiful and nice. And, and uh, because of the hurricanes and whatever, they, they built this giant berm 
uh, between the road and the sea. And, uh, and as you're driving down the road, uh, it's about, I don't know, three or four miles uh, drive to get to the ranger station, to get to the beach. And as we're driving, about, about every quarter mile, there was uh, a sign posted on the dunes. And you know, what the, you know what the sign said? It said, do not walk on the dunes. And on, around every one of those poles, there were footprints. <laughs> right? And I always think of this, this text, because, and we'll get there when we, when we get further along here in Romans, but the law becomes complicitous with sin so that when the law says, thou shalt not, you think, oh, I didn't know I could. And now I know I can. <laughs> and now I know I shouldn't. But I'm gonna. It's what the law does. It brings it front and center. Romans 3.20, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. In 1 Timothy 1.9, this is an important one. Paul writes to Timothy, Understand this. That the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and the profane. It's not meant to save you, it's to, sh it's to show you how sinful you are. You see, the law cannot justify sinners. It can only tell you that you are one. And that you're guilty in the eyes of God. You are guilty under the law. And clearly the law is used of the Lord to show sinners that they need a Savior. But it in itself has no power to save. Only to condemn. And then notice verse 15. Where Paul says the law brings wrath. But where there is no law there is no transgression. Transgression here is, is a is an important term. It refers to intentionally overstepping a boundary and thus breaking a clearly defined commandment. This isn't an oops. It was, it is, I see where the boundary is. I don't like it. I prefer to step over it. I will rebel against whatever authority to get there, but I'm going. That's transgression. If there is no transgression, there's no need of the law. Law shows us where we stand, but it has no power to save. And this was the personal experience of the Apostle Paul. Paul tried very hard to be saved by the law, but he failed miserably. Having been snatched by Christ as a brand from the fire, he now understood that the law produces wrath. It condemns the sinner. It pronounces a curse on all those who do not comply with the perfect demands of God in his law. But beloved, it is at this very point of utter hopelessness that the gospel steps in. And this is where the good news comes along. That's really good news. You know why? The law was designed to expose our sin, to increase our guilt, to condemn us under the wrath of the law, wrath of God. And we earned it. It would be righteous for God to give it to us. 
And yet here is what we read in Galatians 3.13. Christ, however, redeemed us from the law, from the curse. God, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. My friends, we are lawbreakers all. We look to the Ten Commandments, it can't save us. We look to our own hearts, it can't save us. We look to our traditions, our religions. None of that can save us. Your good works can't save us. But this is the gospel, namely that the wrath you deserve for sin, all the sins that you have committed, are laid upon Jesus in your place. The substitutionary sacrifice is for you. If you will humble yourself, and confess that you need it, and receive it by faith. Well, these are the three negative reasons that we, um, reasons why we cannot be justified by law. And I stumble here because I'm looking at the clock, and I'm thinking, do I go on to the next three? Well, maybe not, for the sake of our children's workers, maybe we'll just close it. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, this wonderful time together this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us opportunity to remember what we don't have and what we desperately need in Jesus Christ and that you have given it by standing in our place and dying for us on the cross, satisfying the wrath of God for sinners like you, like me, like all of us. Oh, Father, I pray, Father, that you would so move in the hearts of anyone here today listening to this who doesn't know you, and that they would repent and believe. These things we ask in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.